0: This is exactly four months after we came and visited and after I preached uh, on Wednesday night at Midweek Manna. So we've just been so humbled by the Lord's mercy and grace to us over the last four months to be here today, to be here with this church body. We thank the Lord for you daily. And this morning, I'm just eager to keep moving through 1 Timothy with you. This is a great, great book. Um, And just by way of review, where have we been and where are we Going. Well, in January, Reese kicked us off in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, by exhorting us towards sound doctrine that is rooted in love. And last week, Pete walked us through chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, showing us that the gospel saves all kinds of sinners. And this morning, we'll be diving into 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So you may have noticed we're in a new chapter. But in many ways, this is also shifting into a new section in First Timothy. Paul tells Timothy in chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So with that in mind, I think it's helpful for us to see our passage this morning, as the beginning of a unique section on the structure and order of church life. Now, this isn't to say that previous passages in First Timothy have not talked about these things, but Paul is now launching into the nitty-gritty of church life, specifically with prayer and roles within the church, both on a congregational and on a leadership level. And so this morning, we begin this section in First Timothy with the grounds and the goal of prayer. My sermon title this morning is Praying to the God Who Saves. And here's the main point that I want us to walk away with from our text this morning. We offer up our prayers through the one who offered himself for us. We offer up our prayers through the one who offered himself for us. If you're able, please stand with me as we read our passage for this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. Who gave himself as a ransom for all. Which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher and of the Gentiles, in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we're going to break this passage up into two sections, verses 1 through 4 and verses 5 through 7. So in the first section, in verses 1 through 4, we have, offer up your prayers, please your Savior. Offer up your prayers, please your Savior your Savior. So what is the action that we see Paul calling Timothy to in this passage? Pray. In fact, he's not simply calling him to pray, he is urging him. You might see that in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge. So in other words, this isn't something that is optional to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus, the church that he's pastoring. But this is necessary. And this is the second thing that Paul has urged Timothy to do so far in this letter. In chapter 1, verse 3, Timothy was urged to ensure that no one is teaching doctrine that is contrary to the gospel. And now Timothy is being urged to pray. So we can conclude that each of these are significant aspects of Timothy's ministry. Guard sound doctrine and pray. And who is Timothy being urged to pray for? We see it right there in the text, all people. Now, just as a brief note here, you might have noticed that in reference to people, the word all is used four times in this passage, in verses 1, 2, 4, and 6. And in our common everyday language, we often use the word all people to refer to every last person. But I just want us to keep in mind, this isn't necessarily what Paul is meaning by saying all people in this passage. So just tuck that away and keep that in mind as we go. I think it's going to be really helpful as we try to understand what Paul is saying and to keep us from drawing conclusions uh, that are are not in line with Paul's argument in First Timothy 2. So in praying for all people, Paul is urging Timothy to pray for types of prayers. These include supplications, which we could say is asking the Lord to supply the needs of others. He's urged to pray general prayers. He's urged to pray intercessions, which could be lifting up another's burdens to the Lord on their behalf. And he's urged to pray thanksgivings. So in other words, we could say that Timothy and the church in Ephesus are to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. And in some ways, these different kinds of prayers are synonymous. He's just kind of unpacking the idea of prayer. But there's also something unique that's happening with each of these prayers, to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. So therefore, this should be a model for us as a church, to pray both for one another and for those in our lives who don't know the Lord. So if you're here this morning and you are not trusting in Christ, Please hear me say that these are ways that we as a church want to commit to pray for you. I think I can speak on behalf of all of us at Redeemer. We don't simply see prayer as a nice sentiment. This is a holy calling for us to live out before the Lord. And every single one of us is in need of prayer. And we want to pray for you. Most importantly, that you would turn from your sin and trust in Christ. And under this category of praying for all people, Paul urges Timothy to pray specifically for kings and all who are in high positions. You see that in verse 2. Now, I don't know about you, but personally I'm convicted that these aren't often the types of people that I find myself praying for. Even if you remember Jeremy Meeks' message from a few weeks ago, sometimes like Jonah and the Ninevites, we can put these people in the box labeled the wrong kinds of people. Right? And Often, these may be the people that we are most tempted not to pray for. But, if we are to truly pray for all kinds of people, this must include our local government officials and national leaders. These leaders have the ability to either provide or prevent opportunities that we have to live in the community in a way that honors the Lord and his gospel. These opportunities are not something that we're promised, right? This is something that's good for us as Americans to be reminded of. But this passage is telling us that they are certainly good to pray for, and we ought to pray for our leaders. Even last Wednesday night, we were giving testimony of the Lord providing a new city manager here in Graham that seems to have a desire to lead with integrity. And we should pray that the Lord would put a new mayor in place that would align with this goal and pray for more leaders like this, both locally and nationally. Again, this isn't something that we are promised, but as long as these opportunities remain available to us under our nation's leaders, we ought to steward such opportunities well in faithfully proclaiming the gospel and living before others in a way that honors the Lord. And even in Timothy's day, the leaders that were there, I mean, you look at the emperors that were leading during this time, This is a striking calling that Paul is is calling Timothy to, and we are being called to the same thing. So what's the result of committing to pray in these types of ways? Pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. What's the result? Verse 2, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. One commentator ties this verse to 1 Thessalonians 4:11 through 12, which talks about living quietly, very similar language, and walking properly before others. And I think this idea of walking properly implies that it's not just our prayers, but also our lives that serve as a testimony to the watching world. So in other words, our prayers ought to inform the way in which we live. So one way to sum up these two verses is this. Believers who truly live godly and dignified lives are those who are committed to prayer. More specifically, those who quietly entrust all things to the Lord in prayer. Only then will we live these lives that are peaceful, that is, full of peace, Now, as far as I know, there's only one other place in the New Testament where the words prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving occur together. Does anyone know where that is? Any guesses? Philippians chapter 4. If you turn back just a couple pages in your Bible to Philippians chapter 4, Paul has just reminded the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. Because he is near to his people. And he says in verse six, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what's the result of these prayers in Philippians four? It's peace. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So in verse, both 1st Timothy 2 and Philippians 4 the result of these trusting prayers before the Lord is that we live in the Lord's peace. So there's a direct correlation between a life that is marked by prayer and a life that is marked by peace. And then Paul wants us to see what the Lord thinks about his people praying these prayers. Look with me at verse 3. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. So this is the kind of prayer that is good and pleasing in our Savior's sight. Prayer that quietly entrusts all things to him. Now, I want to live a life that's grounded in prayer and that pleases the Lord in these ways. Don't you? And I find it interesting that Paul's first instructions to Timothy about prayer is that he prays for others. I don't think Paul's telling Timothy that it's wrong for him to pray for himself. I know that all of us as believers can attest to the fact that we need prayer for our own hearts as we seek to honor the Lord. But it does seem that Paul is emphasizing that in prayer, we ought to be regularly confronted with our need to take our eyes off of ourselves. And personally, I'm especially reminded of this when I'm praying for the salvation of those who don't know the Lord. Our God is the Savior of sinners. And when we pray for him to save even more sinners, this is a reflection of his own heart as our Savior. Verse 4, this God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The Lord truly desires that sinners would be saved. He loves to save sinners. And I don't know about you, but I don't know that I can't say that that's always true of my heart, that I would always desire this. But praise the Lord that it's true of his character. He desires to save sinners. Now, there are a few difficulties in this verse that we need to unpack Briefly, first, does the Lord actually desire all people to be saved? Has this always been true of God? What about in the Old Testament? I think this is important for us to ask in light of our passage because the Old Testament scriptures would have been what Timothy and the Ephesians had in their hands when Paul was writing this letter. I want to tell you a brief story about a guy named Marcion. Does anyone know who Marcion is? not a guy who lived on Mars. This is a theologian in the second century. And sadly, uh, Marcion couldn't see a way to reconcile God's character in the Old and New Testaments. So what he ended up doing was teaching that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are really two different gods. So you have the God of the Old Testament who's filled with wrath and justice and the God of the New Testament who is filled with love and and mercy. Now, though we may not go to the same extreme as Marcion, dividing our Bible and dividing our God in two, we may fall prey to subtle forms of this line of thinking in more ways than we realize. We may be tempted to think that it was God's wrath that was on display in the Old Testament and it's God's love that is displayed in the New Testament. But I want to encourage you to study God's word slowly and And attentively. I believe that if you do this, you will see that God is truly unchanging in his character and will always be. And if we look at one passage that demonstrates this, you don't have to turn there. But if you'd like to turn there with me, Ezekiel 18. I'm going to read verses 21 to 23. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. And here's the key. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. The message is the same. Though the Lord certainly hates sin and wickedness, and if you read Ezekiel, it was rampant, even among God's own people. But he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He desires that they would turn from their sin and turn to him in repentance. So what Paul is telling Timothy about this Lord who desires to save sinners, it's always been true of him. He was, is, and will always be perfect in both his justice and his mercy. Amen? So we talked about the Lord desiring this. What about when Paul says the Lord desires all people to be saved? Remember when we talked earlier about this phrase, all people? Well, he's not saying that every last person will be saved or that this salvation is possible for everyone and rests on man's decision. And this is one of the most significant passages in the debates surrounding the doctrine of election. And here are some of the key questions. How can the gospel be offered to all people, yet only some will be saved? Why share the gospel, if that's true? Well, if we say that every last person will be saved, then we've adopted some form of universalism, right? All paths lead to God. But what's true is that the gospel is offered to all people. Yet only those whom God has chosen for salvation will respond in repentance and faith. So in terms of our evangelism, we're to be faithful in proclaiming this gospel to all people and let the Lord do the work in saving his people. A dear mentor of mine used to say, when Jesus says, come unto me, he's not standing there with his fingers crossed behind his back, just hoping that they'll come. When Jesus calls them, they will come. His people will come to him when he calls. So though there's some tension between these truths, they don't contradict each other. This is what some theologians call the great tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God is completely sovereign over salvation. And yet man must willingly decide to respond, to repent from sin, and to turn to Christ. But in this, our salvation still rests completely upon Jesus Christ and his work, and this work calls his people to himself. So having these things in mind, I think, helps guard us from saying things like, well, the Lord wants people to be saved, but he doesn't actually have the power to do it. No, the Lord desires that sinners would turn and repent, and he knows that only some will. And those some are those whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world. What is beautiful about this is that Jesus does, he does it all on the cross, right? It is finished. And this powerfully draws all of us to him who would believe in him and his work on our behalf. Redeemer, this should be a deep comfort to you this morning. If you are here this morning and believing in Christ, you can stand amazed that he has chosen you before the foundation of the world. And this means we can be sure that our Lord will save every last one of those that he draws to himself. If he has drawn you to himself or is drawing you even now in this moment, rest in this truth. He will save everyone whom he draws to himself. And this truth is the knowledge of the truth about our Savior that Paul now turns to in verses 5 through 7. So in verses 1 through 4, we have offer up your prayers, please your Savior. Now in verses 5 through 7, hear the testimony of your sacrificial Savior. Hear the testimony of your sacrificial Savior. I want us to see that everything in this passage hinges on verses 5 and 6. Paul grounds everything in this truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom For all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. There's one God and there's one mediator. And we can be confident that our prayers reach the Father through him because he has given us salvation through him. Even as we think back to our scripture reading in Hebrews 13, this is on display all throughout scripture. We offer up our prayers through the one who offered himself for us, And this means that when we pray in Jesus' name, this isn't just some magical prayer formula, right? To pray in Jesus' name is to recognize that we are only able to offer prayers to the Father because of Jesus' perfect offering on our behalf. And Jesus Christ qualifies to be this one mediator because he is fully God and fully man. Because there is no one else that is fully God and fully man, there is none other that can be the one mediator. And notice how Paul says that there is one mediator. He doesn't say there was, doesn't say there will be, there is forever. From the moment he offered himself on the cross for our sins and forevermore, Jesus Christ is our mediator. And maybe at this point you're saying, okay, you've used this word mediator a lot. What does that mean? What exactly is a mediator? Well, a simple way to understand this is a representative who stands between God and his people. And when the Jews in Ephesus heard the word mediator, they would have likely thought of Old Testament figures like Moses or Aaron or his sons who interceded for the people of Israel in God's presence. In this way, they functioned as mediators for the people of Israel because here was the problem. A sinful people needed someone to stand between them and a holy God. And Aaron served in this role in a significant way as Israel's high priest. And one of his responsibilities was to offer sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. And when scripture uses this word atone in reference to sin, one of the things it's communicating is that it's a substitution or a payment. It's a ransom for sin. But as you read the story of scripture, you discover that ultimately, these sacrifices are unable to provide a complete atonement for all sin. And further, the Bible tells us that because Aaron was a sinner, he was in need of atonement himself. God's people needed a sinless high priest who could fully and finally provide atonement for their sins. Redeemer, Jesus, is this sinless high priest, this one mediator that Paul is proclaiming in 1 Timothy 2. He has come. Our Redeemer has come. And I would encourage you to read through the book of Hebrews this week, uh, specifically 4-10, through and this portrait of Christ as our mediator, it will cause you to stand in awe of your Savior and what He has done on our behalf. But just as a little sneak peek into Hebrews, if you listen to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, He, that is Jesus, offered, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. Amen. This is exactly what Paul wants Timothy and the church in Ephesus to know about Jesus, and that's what I want you to know about Jesus this morning, that he willingly and sacrificially gave himself in shedding his blood for sinners. You might be looking at this passage and saying, well, the word cross isn't there we can be sure that this is what Paul's talking about when he talks about giving himself. When he writes to the same church that Timothy is pastoring, in Ephesians 5, Paul says that Christ gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A sacrifice that is acceptable to God. Only Christ's sacrifice is this ransom that can pay for sins completely and totally. He is the one and perfect mediator. And Paul tells us that this ransom serves as a ransom for all. So here again, we have a reference to all people. What does Paul mean by saying that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is a ransom for all? And if you know your Bible well, you might remember that in the Gospels, Jesus says he is a ransom for many. Now, we know the Bible is perfectly true, so it can't be contradicting itself here. And certainly Paul is not going to speak against what the Lord Jesus has said. But we do have to wrestle with this question of who exactly this ransom is for. And this is one of those instances where Paul talks about all people in a way that requires us to pay closer attention. Now, some would argue Uh, that when Paul is saying that Christ's sacrifice is for all people, he's saying that Christ's sacrifice has the potential to ransom all people, as in every last person. But we've already established earlier in this passage that not every last person will be saved. So this can't be saying that this is simply a a potential or a possible salvation for all. One of my former professors, Thomas Schreiner, is really helpful On this point here, he says that the verse and context say nothing about the potential ransom of everyone. It stresses that Christ gave himself as a ransom so that at the cost of his death, he actually purchased those who would be his people. In other words, if we say that Jesus' sacrifice is just a possible salvation for all people, we're saying that his sacrifice isn't actually powerful enough to do what it was set up to do. Instead, his sacrifice actually does pay the price for all whom he draws to himself. His sacrifice is powerful to do exactly what it is set out to do. You tracking with me so far? And this builds upon the earlier discussion of the Lord who desires all people to be saved. Now Paul's showing us this isn't just something that the Lord desires, but he has set forth his plan to accomplish it. Our Lord has made a way of salvation for his people from all nations, all kinds of people who would repent of their sins. This way is through the one mediator, the Lord Jesus. Logically, right, if there's only one mediator, he must be the Savior for all. His sacrifice is for all kinds of people, for Jews and Gentiles, for you and for me. And just as we were called to pray for all kinds of people earlier in this passage, Paul is now commuting that Jesus' sacrifice serves as a ransom for all kinds of people. He has given himself as a sacrifice for sins on the cross, paying our ransom in full that we might come to the Father through him. And as Jesus told his disciples over and over, This is the only way to the Father. This is the only way of salvation. And this is the testimony of our sacrificial Savior. And as Paul instructs Timothy and the Ephesians, and by extension us here at Redeemer Church this morning, this isn't just a testimony that Paul has crafted himself. It is the testimony given at the proper time, the text tells us. This testimony is the redemptive plan that the Father has set forth in his Son to accomplish, that he would pay the price for the sins of his people by offering himself on the cross in their place. And he has done this. Jesus has accomplished this mission. And if you read through Paul's letters, you'll often see him using phrases like this, the proper time, the right time, the fullness of time. And Paul's using this to describe God's plan of redemption. By doing this, he's emphasizing God is completely sovereign over his plan of redemption. It unfolds in the exact way he has planned, in the exact time that he has appointed. And for us here this morning, this also includes our future salvation, when Christ returns again. In chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, Paul says that Christ will appear one day in glory. When? At the proper time. It's the same phrase in this passage. Brothers and sisters, this means we can take God's promises of salvation to the bank. Because Christ was faithful to purchase our salvation when he offered himself on the cross in his first coming, we can be confident he will bring it to completion when he returns again. And as he bears witness to this glorious testimony of the sacrificial Savior, Paul tells us this is the very reason for his ministry. Look with me at verse 7. For this, that is, this testimony, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith. And in truth. So Paul's pointing back to a specific moment in his life when he was appointed to this ministry. We've referenced it already going through first Timothy, Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, where the risen Lord Jesus transforms Saul the persecutor into Paul the preacher. And in Acts nine fifteen, Jesus describes Paul as a chosen instrument of mine to carry forth my name to the Gentiles, that is, to all nations. And at the close of our passage this morning, Paul is assuring Timothy and the Ephesians he's telling the truth about this ministry and an apostleship. This isn't something that he's just made up. And At first glance, this seems kind of a strange thing to say in this letter. But it seems that Paul doesn't want to leave any room for the truth of this testimony and his role in proclaiming it to be in question. And we can be grateful that Paul held true to this calling to preach the truth about Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, to the nations. Because this message is for all kinds of people and it has made it all the way to us here this morning. And we know that the story of Paul's conversion and his appointment to ministry was familiar to the Ephesians because he tells them in Ephesians 3 that he has been called to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I think we can all agree that these unsearchable riches are present in our text this morning. Our one and only mediator, Jesus Christ, has offered himself in our place. Because of his perfect and complete offering on our behalf, we offer up our prayers and our very lives in service to him. Please pray with me. Father, we praise you for sending your son to accomplish this mission, to offer himself on the cross for the sins of his people. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your willing sacrifice in our place. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would fill our hearts with confidence in this one, in the Lord Jesus who has offered himself for us, that we would be a praying people, that we would offer up our prayers and all of our lives to serve Him. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.